nowadays, being a bit older, I'm not I'm not, I'm not into accolade chasing. I just want to cook f- good food that I could eat on an everyday basis, and I want to enjoy what I do. Like you know, I not to be not to be rude, but I don't want to work 80, 90 hours a week. I don't want to put food in the plate with tweezers. Those days are behind me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. It's all too easy to stereotype and pigeonhole cuisines. For instance, the food of Eastern Europe has often been classified by the ignorant as potatoes, cabbage and vodka. But cuisines always speak of climate, of local produce and of culture. Take Croatia, a country that is the original homeland of many new Australians. But what lies at the heart of their cuisine? Daniel Dobra is the head chef of Market Bistro in Maroochydore, Queensland. Daniel, how are you? Very well. How are you today? I'm good. It's been a pretty crazy period of time in um, southeast Queensland. What's it been like you for you for the last week? It has been pretty. It's been pretty absolutely wild up here. Like the the weather here is unlike anything I've ever seen before. Um, obviously, there's been flash flooding all over the area. We're pretty lucky where we're lo- where I'm located on the Sunshine Coast um, in Maroochydore. We've sort of only we've only skipped through it by the skin of our teeth. Like literally a couple of suburbs up, like, you know, you go 30, 35 Ks up to Noosa and, and to Wanton and they're like completely underwater. So we've been super lucky. Um, but in saying that, like we've had sunshine here the last three days and then today just the heavens opened again and we saw more rain fall in two hours this morning than probably what fell in the space of a day while it was really wet up here. It was just just the volume of water was gnarly. But luckily, we're all safe. Everything's good. Market Bristro has made an incredible name for itself in a short period of time. Um, tell us a little bit about the venue and what lured you to a role there. So Market Bistro, um, like all, all jokes aside, we are just nothing less, nothing more than just a, a humble bistro on the coast. Like there's a bit of a misconception that people perceive it as being fine dining, but that's not – that's not the case and that's not what we want to that's not what we want to express in ourselves like all we want to do is provide good honest food at a reasonable price um for the masses essentially like you know we the ethos that we run behind is that you know any single person who walks to that door it doesn't matter what they are who they look like how much money they make how much money they don't make it's all it is about is when that person walks through the door, all uh, all preconceived ideas of what we are get left at the door and every person who comes will leave getting something they want on the menu. Like, you know, we don't we don't want to label ourselves as a pretentious venue. We don't want to label ourselves as a fine dining venue. We're like, you know, if you want a steak, you can have a steak and fries and salad, you know. If you want a bowl of pasta, you can have a bowl of pasta. If you want to be a little bit more adventurous, you can be a little bit more adventurous. But um, I think it's just – it goes back to the age-old philosophy of good food, uh Good, amazing ingredients uh, prepared well and um, prepared well and execute, executed flawlessly. You know, you, you slap a you slap a moderate price on that, 
you know. Um, you provide great service in a simple setting and you've got a recipe for success, you can say. You've uh, spent a lot of your career south of where you are. What, what made you uh, move to the region? Yeah, so obviously, like the the lists and the droves of many other chefs um, who are in the same situation as me, COVID twenty twenty uh, hit everyone super hard. Like literally, I just opened a venue in Melbourne called Bistro Garcon. We were over for four weeks when COVID hit and we got shut down and then sort of the drips and drabs and the misinformation and no one really knowing what's going on. And I, my wife and I, like we were in Melbourne, like, you know, I've been in Melbourne for 17 years at this stage. And we would, we'd, um, I was like holding on and holding on because Bistro Garcon was like, you know, a reckoning for me. Like it was a, it was a chance of a lifetime. It was a dream venue, but, um, you know, unfortunately, it just wasn't meant to be. Like, kept waiting for things to settle down and kept waiting to reopen. And just, unfortunately, um, because we'd only been home for so long and we didn't have, like, financial history of the venue, no one was eligible for any any sorts of payments or any sort of, sort of relief from the government. So... I, like every other chef in every other chef in Melbourne and Victoria, I started applying for jobs. Um, literally tried to get work in whatever I could, whatever I could. Like I, I applied for everything, like probably two hundred different jobs on Seek. Anything that I thought that I could do, like plant operator, garbage collector, um, prison guard. Like literally applied for anything I could do because, like, I ha- I had to work. Um, you know, like I couldn't afford to just have the unknowing and like this gray storm cloud over my head. So eventually what happened with me was um, the only two jobs out of like the, the 200 or so that I applied for that got back to me, one was the prison guard and another job was a chef in a nursing home. So the prison guard job was a government job, which um, was a, was a government job. So, like I went through like six rounds of interviews and c- continue to go through them. And by the time I got to this, by the time I got to the, um, by the time I got to like the, the seventh interview, I think that was the last one, the nursing home called me and said, Oh, Hey, we've got your resume. Um, do you want to come in for a chat? And so I went in for a chat and I'm like, Oh, you know, how's it going? They're like, yeah, it's good. Um, they're like, yeah, it's, it's been crazy. Like two months ago we, like we we put a ad on ad on seek to get chefs and we got four applicants like you know we put this job up a week ago and we got 470 <laughs> so eventually what happened was I, I beat like 470 people to get this job in this nursing home out in Bentley and I I'd, I'd never set foot in a nursing home let alone cooked in one before and that was a really really gnarly eye opener so long story short um I ended up working there for just over five months, just hoping and praying and holding on to the fact that, you know, we we're going to come through COVID unscathed and we could reopen Bistro Garçon. But um, lo and behold, that was never meant to be. And, and unfortunately, it got to the point where my surroundings and setting that I was working with starting to have a real, real toll on myself, like not just um, physically, but emotionally more than anything. Like I'd never been in that situation, like, you know, coming from working in nice restaurants and cooking with people, like, you know, being in that situation, still trying to provide beautiful food on a shoestring budget to people who are in the twilight years of their life, eventually it just got too much. And I got home from work one day and my wife was on the phone to one of our friends who lives up here in the Sunshine Coast. <laughs> they had a conversation saying, hey, why don't you guys move up? And then she was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll try and convince D when he gets home from work. 
I got home from work that day. Ashley's like, oh, hey, do you want to move? I'm like, yep. I'm like, where do you want to go? She's like, I don't know, the Sunshine Coast. I'm like, yep. And like literally seven weeks to the day, we were on a plane on our way up here. Like we we just said, screw it. Like there's there's nothing going on for us in Victoria. There's no there's no closure. And this was that, that was in September. That was still in the midst of like the huge um, the huge lockdown that we had. So we moved up here literally with one friend, found an apartment to rent and just sort of jumped feet first into a brand new life and a brand new place. And like, you know, both of us had never even been to the Sunshine Coast before, before we moved here. We were just like, well, you know, anything's got to be better than Victoria. And, um, you know, luckily, luckily we got here and instantly found a beautiful group of people to be friends with and just realised like... Queensland and Sunshine Coast up until this point have been relatively untouched from COVID. They had like the 28-day lockdown when it first happened, but other than that, their life was just normal. And so, you know, coming from that repressive state that Victoria was in, um, that's where that's where we're just like, holy crap, this place is paradise. And that that, that was how I found myself to be on the Sunshine Coast. Um, now, Moving forward, I ended up to get up here. I sort of just took any job I could find, and I ended up working for some guys. Which you know, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, they—it's not they were bad operators, but they were sort of like when I got to their group. I guess you can say their their best years, unfortunately, were behind them. Um, and I tried my hardest to make things work because I needed to make things work. But then one day, how I found out Marco Bistro, the, the owner of the whole group, comes up to me. He's like, oh, you know, one of our chefs had just quit. She's gone to go work with these guys. I'm like, oh, who, who are these guys? And they're like, oh, guy by the name of Tony Kelly. You know, he's got Rice Boy. He's got Spiro. You know, he's opening up venues, been super successful, you know. And then I looked – and we're flicking through and he's like, oh, this is their Instagram. Oh, have you ever heard of this chef? And I'm like, he shows me this picture of Harry. I'm like, oh, fuck, Harry, yeah. Like, I've absolutely heard of him. Like, you know, he's, he's long-time, you know, long-time Melbourne, long-time Melbourne chef. And, like, quite a few of my mates have worked for Harry in Melbourne at various places. And I'm like, they're like, oh, you know, what do you reckon of this? I'm like, fuck, if, if he's there, the place is going to be amazing, like, hands down. Because, like, you know, he doesn't cook shit. <laughs> doesn't cook shit, cooks, cooks good food and then you know he's honest about honest about it so that's how that started and then through through a friend of mine i'm like oh you know because i never actually knew harry personally just knew of him um texted one of my mates and i'm like hey you know can you make an introduction like i'm not really happy where i'm at and um can you make an introduction with harry and so then literally he's like yeah man no worries he texted harry harry called me like the next day and um went in for a chat and the, i guess you can say the rest is history Mm. It was it was sort of it all sort of like moved up here. I was here for maybe two months working in a place I wasn't wasn't probably really happy with, and um, literally just decided to leave and move over to Market Bistro, and that's it. The rest is history. It's all been it's all been sunshine, lollipops, and roses. <laughs> Take us back to when you were young. You've got um, incredible Croatian heritage, and um, and on Instagram you explore, you've explored that before in the past with some incredible dishes and and things like that. Take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play in your family? So food food in my family was like the biggest 
it was sort of the biggest, like, so it's to get to actually the root of the answer, you need to go back a bit further. So unfortunately my parents separated when I was about four years old and my mother is Australian, my father's Croatian. Uh, so my brother and I lived with my mother like all year round, but during school holidays, we would spend the whole two week school holidays every year up until I was about 12 or 13 with my dad. I come from a small town called Esperance on the southeast coast of WA, only 13,000 people, small place. So my dad would pick us up, we'd drive to Perth, and we'd spend the full two-week school holidays, like every school holidays, in Perth with my dad, with like all my dad's side of the family. So all the all my Croatian roots all lied in Perth, um, in Perth and the dad's side of the family. So a lot of those, a lot of those first memories of family and of togetherness of aunties of uncles of of nonna and you know all all those things that i can relate to it was all it was all with my croatian side of the family so the croatian food um the croatian food and all the food which initially i first took to just be normal like you know i thought I thought cooking Spanish mackerel, Spanish mackerel marinated in garlic and parsley in olive oil over charcoal, I thought that was a normal thing. Like, you know, I thought chivups were a normal thing. I thought cabbage rolls were a normal thing. But it was only like – it was only until I got a little bit older that I realized how, how blessed and how gifted I'd been with food and to have that sort of influence on my life from such an early age. Like family and food and my nonna, so like my dad's mother – um, she was an absolutely amazing cook and still to this day, like I've made gnocchi in some amazing restaurants all over. Still to this day, I don't know how my nonna used to make like little fluffy clouds of heaven. Like still, still don't know. Like so food was a huge part. It was always like, you know, Sunday lunch or Friday night dinner, like being in Perth because we were there, all the, all the aunties, all the uncles, all the cousins, everyone would always show up because we were there and it was this – this big, beautiful family togetherness and this big, beautiful belonging of all being in the same place, all enjoying beautiful food. And, you know, like every time we're there, there'd always be some garage party where there was a pig on the spit or a lamb on the spit and, like, you know, you know, the, the piano accordion would come out and there was way too much, way too much grupper and rockier drunk and, like, they're, they're the memories that I have of, of childhood which sort of not to say that my mum wasn't family orientated but I've the most of the family orientated memories were around my dad's side of the family so like with Croatian food and always like in my heart and my soul feel I'm more more Croatian than Australian even though that's completely not the case like I'm a 50-50 mix and I grew up in Australia and any any full-blooded Crow would call me a dinky die Aussie but for me personally growing up around those people and growing up around that culture and around that food really made a gave me this amazing sense of pride and sense of who I am and where I'm from and and what I am and you know it's which is massively massively influenced me all throughout my life and all throughout the food that I've that I've cooked not just the food that I cook in restaurants but the food that I cook at home every day Croatian food has easily been stereotyped but tell us about some of the dishes that um that that you love and you remember and and still cook to this day that that speak of Croatian food yes so if you were to look at Croatian food, there's there's two two 
distinct styles of Croatian food. So you have the Mediterranean style, which is all the part of Croatia. Like obviously you're familiar with the map. There's the coast of Dalmatia, which goes right from the, the, the northernmost tip in Slovenia all the way down all the way down to the, the base near to, to, to near Macedonia. And so the Mediterranean side of Croatian food, um, that's where my fa- family comes from. They come from Dalmatia, the, the, the coastal region. So it's, it's probably the, the biggest mix of Italian, Greek and Turkish food. Obviously, Croatia has been fought over for centuries and centuries by various, um, various world powers. So within all of those, within all of those people who once upon a time owned or controlled Croatia, they all left their open marks on food. But to look at Croatian food as, as such, so you've got the Mediterranean side. So things are super fresh, like lots of garlic, lots of parsley, lots of olive oil, lots of vinegar, you know, lots and lots and lots of handmade pastas, lots of um, sweet pastries, you know, lots of charcoal grilling. Um, Whereas if you were to look at the other part of Croatia, which is they class the continental side of Croatia, which is all of the inland regions. So like, you know, a lot of influence from um, a lot of influence from Hungary and Austria and, um, all the all the other countries that sort of are near of and or border the the inland part of Croatia. So their their style of food it's a lot it's it's not necessarily a lot richer, but it is a lot heavier. That's like you know a lot of the a lot of the sauerkraut dishes, a lot of the cured meats, smoked fishes, like you know a lot of those heavier dishes which people would say oh yeah this is eastern european food that's where that style of food comes from you know the whole cabbage potato smoked pork vibe that's that's that that generally and truthfully is the continental part of croatia um so obviously growing up my family being from the mediterranean side that was like where our food reflected, but like, you know, all through Croatia, they make, they make cabbage rolls or sadama. They make them everywhere, <laughs> everywhere, all over Croatia. But, you know, from the cabbage rolls they eat on the coast are different to the cabbage rolls they eat inland. The cabbage rolls they eat inland are usually made as opposed to like fresh smoked pork. They're usually made with dried pork, which they, they reconstitute in water. And then like, you know, the cabbage rolls are usually eaten with like a mashed potato and then a dollop of sour cream on top. Whereas coastal wise, they don't. It's, it's none of that. It's literally it's it's fresh, fresh minced meat with fresh smoked bacon cooked in like a really light tomato sauce. So that's that's just a brief example. Some of the food which I I cook and some of my like you know go tos. So um, goulash is like. Every every winter, it's it's time to make goulash for me. So, like you know, that's your your, your classic your classic um, you know boiled. It's basically boiled meat, flavored with tomato, flavored with wine, flavored with spices, and then vegetables get added to it. So, like you know, not necessarily. It's not thick. It's not it's not thick like a stew. You know, you've got you've got tender bits of meat with beautifully flavoured vegetables with soft potatoes in like, you know, uh, what essentially is a really light broth, which they're, they're some of the things. That's some of the, definitely one of the things I make. 
every 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 time I get. There's another. There's a few other little things which they call it. One of the names is blitva, also known as zelia, which is just a really simple stew made of potatoes, sewerbeet, garlic, olive oil, salt, and pepper. Um, that's and that's that's literally made. That's like one of those side dishes which is always around, always there. Traditionally eaten with fish, but you know, once again, eaten with everything. Chavapis. Like you know, we used to make our own chavapis when the when the family was around. Like obviously, as times got got longer, we used to go to the butcher to buy them. So, in terms of dishes, there's there's some other particular dishes which are sort of very uh, which are very related only to certain areas of Croatia. So, like all the coasts, all the coasts, which is a thing that we used to do, which is called the pecker, which is like something which I I've never really seen it anywhere else other than the coastal region of Croatia or from the people who came from the coastal region of Croatia in Australia. So a pecker is basically cooking things in a camp oven, except you've got a particular size dish that you place everything in and you've got this great big thick cast iron dome bell. You light a fire with charcoal and wood. Once the fire's at its, its highest flames, you throw this huge big cast iron bell over one side of the fire this big cast iron bell heats up to like, you know, roaring like four or 500 degrees Celsius. Where the fire was, you wait till the fire's burned down to charcoal. You split the fire in half, slide like, you know, tri- the most traditional one they make is it's turkey, pork and lamb. You line, line the base of the, this, this round dish with potatoes, peppers, onions, garlic, rosemary, bay leaves, olive oil, wine, salt, pepper. Place all your meat on top. Slide that into the place where the fire was burning. This big, this big like roaring hot iron dome goes over. All the charcoal that was burned down, you, you push that all around the sides and um, shovel it over the top. Now, the, the amazing thing which happens behind this is when the iron hits the hits the tray, basically the um, the tray underneath swells and heats up, almost forms like a perfect seal within this pecker. So what happens is no steam can escape. So you know. Realistically, you can cook a lamb shoulder about an hour and a half because it's like a pressure cooker. So for about an hour and a half, it'll literally cook. Takes you know, you can cook a chicken in forty minutes forty minutes to the point where it's like falling apart. So you create this what essentially is a charcoal fired like steam and pressure cooker. All the flavour of the smoke and the charcoal still finds its way in there somehow. Um once, after about an hour and a half, get a hammer, bang the side of it, cracks, breaks, a big puff of steam will come out. You lift the lid to get all the moisture out of there, close the lid back down. Um, and then within probably 10, 10, oh, 10 to 15 minutes, all of that heat that's still residual within uh, within the lid of the dome literally caramelizes everything. And it's, it's, it'll literally look like everything you've got in there will look like it's been roasted, roasted in a 200-degree oven for an hour. Like it goes from steamed to roast instantaneously. And that's that's something truly, truly unique. Like that's something that I've seen that that, that, that isn't replicated anywhere else, anywhere else anywhere in the world. So when you think of Croatian food, that's like the stuff that I think, which, you know, is really, really special. And unfortunately, like, 
it still happens there, but it's it's something that you just don't ever see anywhere else. You mentioned you had about 17 years in Melbourne, which is extraordinary as part of your career, but what's been the real integral moments in your career that have um, helped forge the path for you? So I think there's probably like, if I was to, to pinpoint a few moments, there's been sort of two or three moments which truly changed me as a chef. Um, when I first moved here, like, you know, I ju- literally just turned 18, moved over. Um, the very first person that I worked for when I got here was a chef by the name of Joe Vigetto. Um, I worked with him and Luke Stringer. Luke Stringer, who I actually work with now, Mark Abishra, funnily enough. It's funny how these these things go around and come around. Um, so when I first moved here, I started working with, with Joe and – Joe was the first person who ever sort of ta- who took a real real interest in me and a real interest to actually train me and teach me right from wrong. I learned more about I learned more about life, learned more about life and myself working six months with him. Like you know the whole yes chef no chef, the whole respect, the the camaraderie. Um, I learned more about life and learned more about how to be a man and about how to be like what it actually took to be a chef than anyone else in my life. He was a, he played a huge instrumental part in sort of setting me up for my, for my life as a chef. Um, moving, moving a little bit forward, a few years later, I was working at um, Phoenix Restaurant in Richmond. Uh, and this was the day, this was when the Dream Team lineup was there when, Darren Purchase was a pastry chef, Dan Hunter was the head chef, and Stuart McVeigh was the executive chef. Um, unfortunately, like most dream teams happen, it was very well short-lived. Um, unfortunately, Dan Dan left, Darren left, and I was there working with Stuart. Now, Stuart was the was a huge, huge inspiration and mentor to my life. Obviously, with his background, you know, working three-star place and two-star place before he came to Australia, just – and his, his passion and his excitement for food and, you know, his technique and his mentality and his personality and, you know, his work ethic. Like I took more, so much from him in the actual physical, the physical and technical side of cookery. Like, you know, what with the stories that he'd tell about the food that we'd cook and the food that we'd speak about, like, you know, that sort of really inspired me to sort of, sort of pursue pursue food in the sense of, you know, like hard work and determination and pushing and pushing and pushing and like, you know, of, of what it took to stand out from the rest and what it took to be better. I'm sort of, I guess you can say the third and third and final major sort of inspiration to me as a chef was after Phoenix, I left and went to go work with Dan Hunter um, just as he'd gone to open the Royal Mail. Like I think he was there for maybe two or three months when I arrived. Um, And like anyone who remembers the Royal Mail back in the day, and like we're talking, we're talking, 2007 here um that like when i when i got there like the place was pretty pretty wild to say like things were still pretty loose in the sense that like you know it was a guy who was working at the two missile star level in the middle of nowhere cooking the most unbelievable crazy food in a town of 400 people like things just didn't make sense but like through through that first team that we had there, like, you know, there was myself and 
probably five or six other guys who we were all there from the start together. I think the first one left after about 18 months. But what what we did there under the guidance of Dan and like, you know, Dan's Dan's clinical execution of order, cleanliness and organisation is still something I've to date have never seen in a kitchen. Like for for someone who has such a fine-tuned palate, for someone who has such such a such a strict philosophy in how things are supposed to be done and how things need to be done and you know the cleanliness order and organization that is kept that that sort of without his that his sort of fine tuning of my already skills or my already skill and ability that was the prevalent there without that I would I wouldn't be half the chef I am today because the, the lessons that I learned from him, not just in terms of methodology of food, but in terms of, you know, what it actually takes to cook at that level consistently. Like, you know, any chef could cook, can cook an amazing meal once. Like, testament to a true, truly great chef is repetition of that amazing meal and experience. And that's that's what I took from him. Like, just the the – and like, let's be honest. That place was <laughs> that place. That place was fucking hard, man. Like, we're doing thirteen days straight, hundred hour weeks, like one day off every two weeks. Like, that place was fucking hard. But like, all we had such a strong knit team of guys there and working with us that, like, you know, we were. It was on one hand, it was every man for himself. On the other hand, if ever in the shit or something was wrong, it's literally like the entire team would come together and we'd all get through it together. That that sort of taught me like some of the lessons that I learned there, like, and because the food was, some of the things we're doing was so fucking preposterous and so hard and like things where Dan had been used to having 40 stages in a back room to do, like there's like, oh yeah, there's eight blokes doing it themselves. So like some of the things we did there was just like, I think back now I'm just like, fucking like how, how did we get through it? But like, you know, like with anything good, if it's worth it, you find a way and you make it work. So in terms of inspiration, they're the sort of the, the three guys the three people who sort of really made a lasting, lasting impression in terms of mentoring me as a young chef. But you know, even in saying that, like, only a fool thinks thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Like, I'm I'm now 35 years old. Been working with Harry for almost 12, 12 months. Harry's a 54-year-old man. And I look at the guy and I'm just like, fuck, Harry, you're 54 years old. But you've got as much energy as anyone else. You run circles around most people. Like, I'm still getting to that stage where I'm like, I'm a 35-year-old man. You're, you're um, 19, year, like, yeah, 19 years older than me. Like you're 19 years older than me and you're still moving and shaking. So like now I've sort of gotten to this, I'm not going to say twilight, but I've gotten to a mature age of my life where I'm still inspired every day by other people who are not necessarily better than me, but other people who are still so passionate and so involved. And it's, it's an amazing thing to see. Do you have a story about, or was there a moment when you you realized you sort of found your own voice on the, on the plate or the way that you like to, to cook and express food? Yeah. So like, 
you, you got to you got to wind back the clock for this one. Like you wind back the clock, you got to look at the mentality and um, what it was to work in you know those sorts of kitchens back in the day. Like everyone talks about the Gordon Ramsay shit and the hardness and the, the yelling and the swearing, but like I was lucky because I was one of the last generations of chefs who experienced that in its most rawest and like in its most raw form and its entirety, like the, the physical and verbal and mental abuse that I've worked, that I've had to deal with in these places. Like nowadays it, it, it doesn't stand anymore. You can't get away with that sort of stuff. But back then it's either you grew a thick skin, you grew a thick skin or there's the door because there's, you know, a hundred people to replace you. It's no problem. So to, to look at this, you got to take that mentality involved. Like I, from a very, very early age, was just beaten down and beaten down and beaten down. I had like natural skill and natural, natural talent, but like any young chef make mistakes. So I was, it was always drummed into my head that, yeah, it didn't matter how good I was because deep down I was, I was, I was worthless. Cause that, that was, that was the mentality that chefs wanted to have that hold over you. They wanted to, wanted to keep you on such a short leash that, you know, even if you were the best, the best, strongest chef in the kitchen, they'd never tell you that because they didn't want you to get an ego and they didn't want you to leave because they relied upon you. So for years and years and years, I, I, I knew that I could cook and I knew that I had natural talent and natural skill and natural ability. Um, but I was this sort of like, I guess you can say, beaten puppy mentality. Like I, I knew it, but I was still didn't know it, so to say. So just before I was about to open my first restaurant, I was working. I got back from overseas. We'd been on like, you know, f- uh, a five-month holiday, spent three months in Croatia because at that time I was about to open an uh, Eastern European Croatian restaurant. So I wanted to like really get back to my roots and do like a proper tour. So I knew what I was getting myself into. So I'd come back, I'd needed a job. I started working with uh, Salvatore Malatesta at St. Ali. And like, you know, I'd stepped in this kitchen as a cafe. I'd sort of like, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, I want to make money, but I don't want anything too crazy because I've got like, you know, a big mission ahead of me. And it was one day where I'd put, I'd put a special or something on the menu and uh, Sal tried and he's like, holy fucking shit, that was amazing. And then – and I'm like, was it really? And he's like, yeah. And he's just like, Sal looks at me. And I remember this day like it was yesterday. And this was like before the renovation, before everything, working in the shitbox kitchen. <laughs> no offense, Sal, but it was true because he knows it. Um, working in the shitbox kitchen and Sal was just like, that fucking piece of snapper was unbelievable. Thank you so much. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm just a shit bloke who can't cook. And he's like, man, you can actually cook. And no one up until that point, no one who was ever – a boss or whoever's who was ever a mentor told who was ever a mentor to me had ever told me anything like that. That was the first person who ever actually said, Hey Dobbers, hold on a second, just take a step back. You can actually cook. And that that for me was a huge, a huge turning point in my life because once once I'm being told that, once someone actually stopped and sat me down and said that to me, that was the, the biggest confidence boost and the biggest biggest thing that I needed because like up up until that point I I started cooking in 2004 so that's what like nine years later like up until that point like I had still genuinely thought that like yeah I was good but I was worthless so that was a huge moment for me and like that sort of it was like from like you, you look these day you look in this day and age you know you got guys who do three years of school 
they do one year of work in a place, and then all of a sudden they're head chef, like four or five years down the head chef. Like it was 10, almost 11 years before I even took a senior role in a kitchen, only because of that was the mentality that, 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 that was thrust upon me from being a young chef. You've really come into your own at uh, Market Bistro and working with Harry as well. Um, what, do you, what do you love about what you're doing at the moment? I think like – like like a lot of chefs, like and now, not not to bullshit, not to not to be anything like this. It's it's very like for the the real chefs who care, who genuinely have a love for this industry and love what they do. It's not very often where all the planets align and everything's fucking perfect. Like I can honestly say in all the years I've been a chef, which is coming up, it's coming up now to like twenty. 21, 22 years of actually been working in kitchens. Like I've had this experience with what I've got now at Market Bistro, I think maybe three or four times in my whole life. Like where, you know, that I'm, I'm coming into my own because I've got amazing people around me. I've got like literally like an, an amazing bunch of people around me. I've got a fantastic support network and I've got, you know, an executive chef who is an amazing person just to be there, who supports me, who um, who we bounce off ideas together. Like literally we run it together and like I've got an amazing boss who owns a place who was a chef once upon a time. So every, every issue that I have, I bring up with him and he just – he genuinely knows and understands it and can offer genuine help and advice. So coming into my own, it's, 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 I guess you can say it's a group of a whole, it's a group of whole different things all working together in harmony, which has sort of made my life so joyous and so easy. Like, you know, nowadays being a bit older, I'm not, I'm I'm not into accolade chasing, I just want to cook good food that I could eat on an everyday basis um, and I want to enjoy what I do. Like, you know, I not to be not to be rude, but I don't want to work 80, 90 hours a week. I don't want to put food in the plate with tweezers. Like, you know, I want to cook good food. I want to do it and do it well. But like my – the days of being a pretentious guy where, you know, there'd be – 35 things in the plate where you had to taste everything individually to, and actually really had to think about it to, to understand it. Those, day, those days are behind me. Um, and, you know, once again, I'm not not discrediting those people who work in those places, but that's just not who I am as a chef anymore. I've sort of come into my own because I guess through, through all the years, um, the years of experience and the years of training, the years of knowledge, I finally found – a venue where I'm supported in such a way that my life is easy. Like, you know, it's not, it's not hard to cook good food when you're working in a happy, healthy, positive environment with people who are around you who generally care. Well, that's an amazing place to be in. And uh, Daniel, it's amazing to, it's amazing to hear just a bit of your story. Um, please keep in touch and um, we'll definitely have to catch up again soon. Yeah. Fantastic. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe. 
and be well. 